Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. My name is Nick Govindan, and I am joined by a man who did not pull Sergio Ramos back in the penalty box, thus giving away a penalty in the biggest domestic game of the Spanish season. It is Caleb Rhodes. Uh, yes, that would be correct. Hello, everyone. <laughs> no Nathan Strauss with us today. It's just Caleb and I, but we're going to do some quick fire weekend review we're gonna go through obviously the massive el clasico that was had on saturday we're gonna talk about some of the other well-performing teams in la liga some real sociedad some atletico madrid some granada and then we're gonna swing over to england and talk about this weekend's slate of premier league results and then we're also gonna close our show by swinging over to italy you know just a brief jaunt over to that lovely country and discuss some siri uh but caleb rhodes not the greatest weekend for you, obviously, from a Barcelona perspective. I thought an interesting lineup put out by Ronald Koeman. I thought it, it was a finely poised game for, for quite a bit of it. You know, 1-1 going into the second half. And then I think there's some baffling decisions by Koeman that I think left Barcelona a little bit floundering in terms of getting their feet firmly back into the match against Zidane's team. I mean, I, I feel very betrayed, cons- or at least I was just so off when I was looking forward to this game after the midweek Champions League results, and I was like, oh, we got this in the bag. But in a lot of ways, I feel like Barcelona, almost as usual over the past few years, have beaten ourselves in a big game. Terrible defensive play from PK uh, for the first goal. Ansu Fati, who is now you know, far and away our top scorer this year, equalizing the eighth minute. But I, I think you're right. Coman demonstrated that I think Coman demonstrated that he really does not have a handle of this team or tactics going forward. I think it was strange to see of all players Pedri take up that right midfield position after good performances, better performances from Trincao and Dembele in the midweek. And once again, you have to leave some space at least for Griezmann coming in. And then it was strange to see once his formation was not working at all to see him wait until the 80th minute, despite seeing Griezmann warming up on the sidelines in like the 45th minute to bring on a triple sub once the game was kind of well beyond us. I think this is a huge step back. We're probably going to have to see the club revert back to a 4-3-3 for the rest of the year, because I think this 4-2-3-1 that he's tried just does not seem to have worked um, consistently enough. Yeah, and on the vein of that four four or that uh four two three one, for me it was interesting to see Sergio Busquets being placed back into the midfield alongside Frankie De Jong, and I think on the whole it was another poor outing for, you know, the Barcelona legend, someone who is a very probably going to go down as one of the best defensive midfielders of all time, if not one of the best players, probably one of the most underrated players in world football of all time. But I just think it was another disappointing showing for Busquets really looked uncomfortable out of possession in that 4-4-2 defensively. And also, I think, gave away the ball way too frequently uh, just because he wasn't quite used to being in that double pivot with De Jong. What do you think about about Busquets coming back into the team? 
Obviously, it was Pjanic at midweek, and it sounds like we're going to see Pjanic again against Juventus alongside De Jong. Obviously, you love Sergio Busquets, club legends, but it, it just he's had a torrid time since since the summer, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I think pretty clearly the like being in a midfield two just doesn't really fit how he plays. I mean, he's never been a particularly mobile player or a particularly fast player. Having the additional responsibility when there's only two people in midfield rather than three has really stretched his sort of physical capabilities and as a result also prevented him from, you know, spraying the ball around and having time um, to find those passes between the lines. That's really what he's known for. So I think, once again, it's a question for Coman, right? Like, do I care more about making this 4-2-3-1 work or do I care more about getting the best out of the players that I have at my disposal in midfield? And I think, you know, in a vacuum, you'd have to say that Busquets is probably, if not our best midfielder right now, our second best midfielder on paper um, besides De Jong. At the same time, though, Pjanic might end up being a better fit um, in a midfield too, although I think that his defensive skills on average are not quite as sharp as Busquets. So I think, I think it's a question. And also we've seen without playing a midfield three that players like Pjanic who were brought in for big money have not seen many minutes. And then also Ricky Puig and Carl Zelenia have seen very few minutes as well. And so perhaps it's time, especially after this result, to start reining in Pedri's minutes, for instance, um, and start reapportioning those to sort of true center midfielders. Yeah, I think we always saw a ceiling, a pretty a pretty low ceiling with this Barcelona team, and just the way that it was, it, it seemed to be messy, messy Busquets, PK, and the youngsters somewhat. And I think in this game against Real Madrid, Madrid and Zidane fielded a very experienced team to go up against this youthful Barcelona outfit. And I think all in all, you could say experience did trump triumph over inexperience on the day. Benzema with an assist, Sergio Ramos with a goal. It just seemed to me that like the regular Madrid's with a goal. It just seemed to me that like the regular performers for Real Madrid ended up showing up on the day in which, you know, they really needed to rebound from that shocking collapse at home to Shakhtar in midweek. <laughs> what did you make of Madrid's performance? Obviously, they got the they got the scoring going in the fifth minute with Valverde. I think all in all, this is the performance that Zidane needed in order to take the pressure off of him and put it back on the Barcelona. You know, our big criticism in our last episode of Madrid was Marcelo. And we were like, it's pretty clear that you can't just you just can't start Marcelo in big games um, and that they should put Mendy back in and put Nacho back in it right back. And lo and behold, the obvious change was made. And I think Madrid were a lot firmer defensively um, because of it. And I think you're right. Like Madrid were just like, you know, we have to go with experience and go with a system that we've played for now almost five or six years now. And just hope that Barcelona, who might have better form a little bit or might have perhaps more interesting dynamic personnel, will just kind of allow us to sneak it in. And I think they succeeded in that, right? Once again, pretty much every single goal that Madrid scored was because of an error or just a mental lapse or break by Barcelona. Valverde, again, was a PK error. Sergio Ramos scored a penalty because... Lenglet was trying to like rip his shirt off his back. Uh, <laughs> and then Luka Modric, of course, uh, scores, you know, a late goal in the 90th minute, you know, off of a rebound and there's no goal goalie in the goal. And it was just kind of like, yeah, of course, this is going to be the final dagger. 
after, you know, minutes earlier, we'd subbed off Ansu Fati, Sergio Busquets, Pedri, and Alba for Griezmann, Dembele, Trincao, and Braithwaite, like, simultaneously, which, like, of course, that was never going to work. You can't do that. Zidane basically was like, well, there's not much I can do. I'll make a bet that Barcelona will sort of implode. And he, I think he, he made a good bet there. Yeah, Zidane. He's living rent-free in the minds of those at the Camp Nou because he's never lost at Barcelona's home ground, which I think is incredible to me. And the fact that he's been Madrid manager for quite some time now and he's never succumbed to a defeat at the Camp Nou. Um, I think it just kind of shows <laughs> just how, I mean, the, the, the mental fortitude of Real Madrid and these experienced players like Benzema. Tony Kroos, I think, also had a pretty, pretty decent game in the three in midfield. I think he's, he's kind of been yeah. struggling for form recently. He looked like he had complete control of this one in the midfield alongside Casemiro and Valverde. Ramos coming back into that back four, I think makes all the difference for Madrid. I think they really suffer without his leadership and his organizational skills at the back. And obviously I, I, this man is just not going to miss from the spot. He is a clutch king as we deemed him on this podcast earlier this summer when Madrid were charging towards that La Liga title. So I think, you know, these are perfect headlines for Real Madrid. I think they needed to get the pressure off of them after the uh, the midweek clash against Shakhtar when they really looked like, you know, this was the end of their cycle. I think it still is probably the end of this Madrid-Zidane cycle somewhat. I just think this prolongs the inevitable. But this is a great result for Zidane with the pieces that he has been given this season. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we talked about how perhaps the spotlight and the scrutiny should be on this Madrid team a little more than it has been on Barcelona but this result as you said completely changes the narrative and once again puts all the pressure back on Barcelona who seem to have a lot more questions uh, to answer I will I before we move on I will just highlight you know another big decision that Komen made was to throw Dest in at right back over Sergio Roberto as a purely tactical choice and while I still think I would have started Sergio Roberto, I think Dest, amongst you know a lot of average performances, acquitted himself quite well um, and actually did a good job against the pace of Vinicius. So one little bright spot, perhaps, um, in an otherwise rather bleak game. Right. And you could see that PK was coaching Dest through the match against Vinicius. You know, I, then I think if you are a Barcelona fan, that sort of dynamic is what you want to see when it comes to rebuilding this team, right? You want to see the experienced players coaching the younger talent through these big matches, but you also want to see the younger talent being entrusted to deliver on the biggest stages. And I think Dest, you know, it wasn't a perfect game from him and Barcelona's defense by any stretch of the imagination, but I think he acquitted himself quite well. When he was able to get forward, I thought he looked pretty dangerous. And I think, you know, that is a formula that Barcelona needs to think about going forward. Messi coaching the likes of Pedri and Trincao through games. PK coaching the likes of Dest through games. I think that's a dynamic that Barcelona needs to consider, needs to continue to push forward with. Because I think that's how you improve the team and that's how you get these younger players bet into the side in a way where they don't feel like, you know, they're coming to a big arena like the Camp Nou, a big stage like Barcelona. And they're just floundering because they've not felt supported in any way by like, you know, the management or the first team. I think that's that's really what you wanted to see from PK and Dest in this game. Yeah. So I guess all in all, I think it was at least an interesting game for neutrals to watch and definitely sort of enlivened the El Clasico fixture, which since Ronaldo left has, I think, 
lost a little bit of its pizzazz. Um, but perhaps now it's worthwhile to highlight, you know, some of the people that are actually succeeding uh, in La Liga, despite uh, Barcelona and Madrid's uh, best efforts. And I think we have to talk a little bit about Real Sociedad, Nick. I think this is, yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of the most exciting teams in Europe right now, Caleb. I think Mikel Oyarzabal is a player that you're a massive fan of. I think it's someone that you've wanted at Barcelona for quite some time. He had two goals at the weekend in their 4-1 win over Huesca. They've only lost one game this season. It was a 1-0 loss to Valencia. They've scored 14 goals, only conceded three. They're the highest scoring team in the division right now. Porto looks like the best player in Europe that we're not talking about and that we should be talking about. Uh, They play just a very silky 4-1-4-1. David Silva, two assists at the weekend. Obviously, a free transfer coming in from Man City. I think this team has a extremely, extremely tasty mix of experienced talent and a young talent coming through right now. Uh, Willian Jose, who I think has been, you know, a pretty decent striker for quite some time now. He's finally getting, you know, better service up top. And I think the big question for Sociedad coming into the season was how are they going to replace the creative output of Odegaard, who was on loan from Real last season? And it looks like David Silva, plug and play. If you're going to lose Odegaard, why not get, you know, one of the best midfielders the Premier League has ever seen in David Silva to come in and deputize for him? So I'm interested to see what you think about, you know, maybe a surprise contender like Real Sociedad coming into the season and maybe challenging for that La Liga title. Yeah, I think this Sociedad team has kind of done what Real Betis seemed to think that they were doing like two years ago, which is put together a really strong team on paper and then actually live up to it. And I think the difference between those clubs perhaps is that some of their best talent is young players that are up and coming rather than sort of relying on the expertise of Joaquin. (laughs) Expertise is a nice way to put it. Um, Or like the brilliant play of Bartra at center back. But I think this team, as you mentioned, has a great mix of players. I think David Silva is despite you know being 34, still a much better player than Martin Odegaard. Um, and I think he adds experience to this team. I think our yards of ball, once again, is just going to keep getting better. And then Portu is such an underrated player. He's great offensively, but his defensive work rate is really, really special. And I think their midfield with Marino and Ilaramendi, um, who didn't even start in this game, right? Uh, are normally excellent. And I think this team just has a lot of depth and they're playing very well together. And I am just, I'm so hot on Real Sociedad right now, especially in a year when Barcelona are kind of figuring themselves out. Madrid, it's unclear how good they can be. And Atletico are probably the only team of the big three that have perhaps improved. There's a big opportunity for a team like Sociedad to sneak into a Champions League place, or even, you know, as it stands right now, they are they are leading the league. You look at David Silva, and he could have gone to Lazio after his city contract expired. You know, that was that big, you know, sort of mini controversy where the Lazio, the Lazio president came out and sort of uh, publicly chastised David Silva because that Lazio deal seemed to be done and dusted. And then at the the final hour, he went and shows you go to Sociedad. And I think if you look at why pick Sociedad over Lazio, you know, they were a Serie A contender last season. They have a lot of talent 
in the prime of their career right now over there at Lazio, and they they could challenge again for that Serie A title. But then you look at this, the composition of the Sociedad team. You know, Mikel Marino is 24, Mikel Yarzabal is 23, Alexander Isak is 21. Christian, even Christian Portu, who I think of someone who's been playing for quite a while, even he's only 28 years old. Ellis Tundo is 26, Gorosebe is 24. These are players who are extremely talented and they're all either hitting that hitting their stride right now they're incredibly young talent or they're right in the middle of the prime of their careers so i think it was an incredibly incredibly savvy pick from david silva to go go to sociedad and try and enhance the talent pool that they have there right now right i think it was a place where he could have more influence like i think the lazio team probably on paper has a lot more quality um, and probably more competition for those center attacking spots, you know, with someone like Luis Alberto, um, for instance. And so here he has the opportunity to kind of rear some younger players, go chill with his bro, Nacho Monreal, um, another sort of Spanish veteran player, and just kind of have a good time without really the expectations that perhaps playing for Lazio uh, would have had and perhaps also escaping some of the uh, unsavory political associations as well. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I think Sociedad, if you're going to watch any team in La Liga at the moment, if you're going to turn on a random game on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, I certainly would pick this Real Sociedad team as one to watch going forward. But I think there's another team that we wanted to highlight. There's two other teams, actually, that we wanted to highlight before we moved on to the Premier League. And that is Let's have a brief word about Granada. They're third in La Liga right now after six games. They're 4-1-1. One, and one, Haven't scored as many goals. They've only scored eight goals. But I think they're a team that is quietly, you know, has finished in the Europa League place last season. They won in midweek away at PSV Eindhoven. They won at the weekend against the Hatafe team, which Barcelona fell to earlier this season. I think their midfield is incredibly, incredibly interesting to me. They have Yango Herrera on loan from Man City. He looks like he is a very, very tasty option in that defensive midfield alongside Itzeki and Montero. Aziz Vallejo, who is, you know, a former Real Madrid center back. Kennedy, you know, probably a, a long vaunted Chelsea prospect. Um, and then they also have Luis Suarez, who is a extremely, extremely promising attacker who, you know, played at Watford, now finally getting some meaningful minutes in La Liga. I don't know exactly what this Granada team can do going forward in the season. I just think it's incredibly, their rise has been really incredible to watch from, you know, being relegated a few seasons ago, always kind of middling at the bottom of the table. And now, you know, they're third in La Liga with some really promising young talent coming through this team. And once again, this is, this is a different Luis Suarez. Uh, yes, this is Colombian Luis Suarez. <laughs> yes. just, just in case there's some confusion in the audience. But yeah, I mean, I think they've put together a bunch of impressive results, save a 6-1 sort of slaughter by uh, Atleti. They've had some really impressive wins over Sevilla last weekend, who, you know, I think are safely one of the top teams in the league. I think they have an intriguing mix of players, and I think it's, you know, one of these classic La Liga stories of no expectations. Um, you have someone like Roberto Soldado, who is quite old, but is just sort of happy uh, to be around, kind of like Alvaro Negredo at Cadiz. Um, and to a lesser extent, you know, David Silva at Sociedad. There's kind of this, you know, old generation of Spaniards that are just throughout 
spread throughout La Liga right now. They have a player like Maxime Gonalons, I think was actually relatively quality when he was playing in France for Lyon and then has kind of not really panned out in uh, his move to Roma and then alone at Sevilla. Um, and then he was on loan at Granada last week or last year, actually, and then uh, and signed this year. So they have kind of a bunch of players that I think have either been cast aside, um, like Jesus Vallejo and like Kennedy, who couldn't make it at Chelsea, that are just interested in having a good time. Um, I think it's a little early in the season to sort of see really where they'll end up or how good they actually are. Um, but I think for now, it, it's definitely one of the feel-good stories. But I don't think that they have the same gravitas or staying power as a team like Sociedad. We wanted to talk about the uh, the team that was on the other side of that 6-1 result. Caleb, I think you wanted to talk about Atletico Madrid. They have had a very strong start to the year. I mean, right now they're in fifth place, three points off the top of the table. But they've played fewer game, two fewer games than Sociedad. Um, and one fewer game than Madrid. So I think it's likely that they're probably t- like actually at the top of the table. They've only conceded one goal um, in their five games, and they've scored 10. Um, I believe they're the only side in La Liga that remains unbeaten. There's a lot of good things going for them. It reminds me a lot, especially with the transfer of the sort of <laughs> the, the Luis Suarez we've come to think of. Similarities between when Barcelona sold them David Villa, and then they went on to win the league especially considering Luis Suarez is, you know, joint top scorer right now with four goals. This team probably, honestly, I think is most likely to win La Liga just because I feel like they're the most consistent side of the sort of normally big teams and they've really started their season quite well. Yeah, and I think that 4-0 loss to Bayern Munich in midweek I think is going to do them a little bit of harm in terms of their public perception around Europe, you know, around for those who don't consistently keep an eye on La Liga. I also think they've had a few poor results this season, a nil-nil draw away to Huesca and a nil-nil draw at home to Villarreal in the two consecutive nil-nil draws, which I think has kind of become the criticism of this Diego Simeone team is that they have an incredible defensive nous, but they aren't able to find one moment of clinical finishing to really, you know, put the game to bed and get three points. However, since then, They've won 2-0 away to Celta Vigo, and they've won 2-0 at home to Real Betis. Luis Suarez scoring in both of those games. So I think if he's, if Luis Suarez is going to continue to score 18 to 22 goals in La Liga, that's consistency at the striker position that they haven't had in quite some time. You know, probably since Antoine Griezmann was <laughs> really like hitting his stride as an Atletico Madrid player three years ago. I think consistent goal production is something that this team has really lacked in the past couple of seasons, even so much as last season you saw Marcus Llorente spending some time as a second striker. Mm-hmm. So no longer are they, as Diego Simeone, having to resort to putting a defensive midfielder up top there <laughs> alongside a number nine. You are right. I, I think last season it was a bit of a transitionary period for this Simeone back four. Diego Godin left the club. Felipe Luis left the club. You know, they had a couple of experienced defenders leave the squad and they replaced them with the likes of Kieran Chippier and Renan Lodi. And I think this season you're starting to see those guys really bet in with the system. Kieran Chippier and Mario Hermoso, actually, who has been deputizing at left back, mm-hmm. have looked really capable. And I think Stefan Savic and Felipe, you know, they're not they're not a center back duo who's gonna they're they're not gonna command a lot of headlines. 
but I think they're two extremely coachable players that Simeone trusts. And I think winning Simeone's trust is probably one of the hardest jobs in world football, uh, judging by, you know, just listening to the players who who have played for him in the past. He's a pretty scary character to play under. And I think if you've won his trust, then you really have a lot of quality and you're a very coachable talent. Um, I think another player that's kind of important to highlight is Lucas Torreira on loan from Arsenal. He looks like he was born to play for a Diego Simeone team. Just his uh, the way his skill set as a defensive midfielder, you know, the way that he he covers, you know, almost every blade of grass with this Atletico team since he's come into the team. Uh, his partnership with Koke in the midfield is one that I look forward to seeing developed in the future. So yeah, I think you know, good news domestically for this Atletico Madrid team. I still think they'll get through their group in the Champions League. I think it's pretty tough to come up against this Bayern side right now. It's not going to do, it's not going to do well for anyone trying to come up against them and get good, good press, good headlines. But I agree with you. I think they are a contender for this La Liga trophy. Yeah, and I think another perhaps underrated uh, addition is not quite the right word. Member of this squad is having Yannick Carrasco for a full season. I think he is a much more kind of tricky player on the wings than Thomas Lamar, who I think hasn't quite hit the heights that people expected of him. We go back to when Atleti made the Champions League final, you know, a few years ago. Yannick Carrasco really was one of the players that was sort of taking it to Real Madrid. Um, And so I think having him for a full season and providing a little bit of competition for that left midfield role is going to raise everyone's level and having a revenge-hungry Luis Suarez, a Joao Felix, who's a little more comfortable. I think this team just has a lot of attacking pieces this year that are going to come together much better than in previous seasons. Well, that is Spain. That is La Liga. Shall we move over quickly to the Premier League? It was another, you know, quite, I don't think as explosive a weekend than we're probably used to having in the Premier League this season, but certainly some juicy tidbits to talk about. I think I wanted to start at the London Stadium. It was West Ham 1. Manchester City won. Mikel Antonio obviously tied up Ruben Diaz, the new signing for Man City, and really yep. capitalized on, you know, just absolutely beating him in a physical a physical contest to score that quite brilliant opening goal for West Ham. Phil Foden got Man City back into this one after Sergio Aguero had to go off with another injury, another muscular injury for him. So I think that's a real loss for Man City, the fact that they were just getting Aguero back and reintegrating him into the team, and he has to go out with another injury. I think the worrying thing for me about this Man City team is that they just look a little directionless in attack, which is, I think, the first time you can probably say that about a Pep Guardiola team, the fact that they don't look like they're creating a lot of quality chances, and I think they're just kind of struggling to string things together as a unit. I think there's a few ways you can probably interpret this. One is how important it is for the Guardiola system to have a sort of central striker um, to center things for the team, right? Because we often see a rotating cast of who exactly is playing on the wings, who exactly is, you know, joining uh, De Bruyne in midfield, et cetera, et cetera. But sort of the thing that is always there is a center striker. And that's usually Aguero, who's just one of the best strikers of the past decade, a clinical scorer. Um, And I think we've seen the team struggle a lot this year, especially with both him and Jesus out. I think adding to the direction list too is the Kevin De Bruyne injury. And although he came off the bench, I think he really is 
incredibly important for ordering and quarterbacking this offense. And then third, the perhaps uh, more interesting hypothesis could be that David Silva in that left center midfield role was a lot more central to the organization of this team than we expected. And Ilkay Gundogan uh, is not a sort of sufficient replacement, nor is Phil Foden, nor is even Bernardo Silva really in midfield. Um, so I think there's a lot of questions about why the system has failed, but those are three potential answers. I don't know. What's, what are your takes on any of those threads? I mean, I agree with you. I think it's incredibly important that this Guardiola setup has a focal point. But to me, I think the struggles here really aren't on the pitch so much as they're, you know, with the mentality of Guardiola and the city team right now. I just think it really looks to me, and I think this was something that was brought up on the NBC broadcast uh, post-match. To me, it just looks like this is the end of this iteration of Manchester City. They've won everything there is to win from a domestic standpoint. Last season was probably their best opportunity to try and win the Champions League, and they faltered against Lyon. Guardiola looks disinterested. I think his players look a little disinterested. Like you, you brought this up on our podcast before that Guardiola doesn't stay at clubs for very long. You know, it's a very short shelf life for the Guardiola project. He comes in, he brings a lot of talent with him. You have three to four amazing seasons of soccer in which he totally redefines, you know, what your club looks like and the rate at which your team wins trophies for those three to four seasons. And then he sort of gets a little bit a little bit tired of the project and then he moves on to another country, another big club, another big project. And I just think we've never seen Guardiola have to reinvigorate a team from a lull. That's not a project that he's particularly interested in. And he might be looking to leave Man City at the end of the season. It just has that vibe to me. Yeah, I think there are some systemic issues that you raised that are relevant here. And I think looking at their team and looking at their transfer business, this club has a lot of uh, career mode save that's gone on a little too long. And you've kind of accumulated a bunch of players um, for a lot of money. And it's unclear how they fit together. You've spent all this money on like 17 center backs and you're leaving John Stones on the bench again for Eric Garcia, who doesn't even want to be at the club. Joao Cancelo, who's not even a left back playing at left back when you have Zinchenko, uh, who is a left back, can play left back on the bench. I agree. I think this feels like a team that has kind of played itself out. Guardiola is not usually interested in, as you mentioned, reinvigorating sides. Even on that point, I think it's an incredibly good point. And I just think even on the Aguero thing, obviously you don't want to buy a striker with the knowledge that you know you have Sergio Aguero waiting to come back. But I think that's like the operative sentence, right? Aguero is always waiting to come back in some capacity. So if you're Guardiola and you wanted to set this team up for success down the line, you would say, you know, like now is maybe probably a good time to go after a, a promising young striker, try and bed him in while Aguero is still at the club. Maybe like they should have been in the market for Timo Werner, someone of that elk, you know, a 23 to 24 year old striker who they can get acclimated to the club, to the Guardiola system while Aguero is still on like probably this is probably his last season as a city player. So there's yeah. just some future proofing that I think Guardiola hasn't been willing to do that is sort of indicative of maybe he's not going to be there for much longer. Right. Or, or perhaps you're right. The move he should have made this summer is to be like, hey, Gabriel Jesus is our striker now. Redoing the pecking order at that striker position 
um, with an eye towards the future. But as of now, right, like, yeah, the only really old player in this starting 11 is Aguero. And it seems like Guardiola is perfectly happy to allow his time at City to elapse with Aguero's time. Yeah, once again, not a good result for City, who have been poor all year. Um, but I will just brief note on West Ham. They are really proving the doubters wrong, at least in terms of their ability to get result other than losses to Arsenal and Everton they have had some really impressive wins recently over Wolves 4-0 over Leicester 3-0 and that crazy draw with Tottenham they have Liverpool at the weekend um, and we'll see if their good form can continue but I think the innovation of rather than waiting until you're you know (laughs) in the relegation zone before you decide to throw Michael Antonio in at striker and just going with him from the outset has been a huge boon to this team. Um, and I think Hammers fans will be quite thankful that, you know, they probably won't have to find themselves in that relegation scrap again this year. Yeah. And I think the worry for West Ham is that Antonio went off injured in this game. So hopefully he's back in full fitness and full fit and firing soon. But if not, they have plenty of other options. Moyes has shown that he's willing to take a lot of risks with this West Ham team obviously playing with the back five at the weekend, a four in midfield, and Antonio is the lone striker. That looked like a pretty risky proposition going up against a City team that can break teams down pretty easily, but it worked a treat against Guardiola, and I think Moyes has been getting his tactics spot on as of late, at least, you know, as the game progresses. I agree. I think this West Ham team certainly proving me wrong. I had them as a candidate for relegation this season, and, and Moyes is showing me that, you know, never count out Moyes. Now we can move to, to probably one of the more interesting games from this weekend, and that was Southampton's 2-0 victory over league-leading Everton at St. Mary's. You know, I'll let you, I'll let you take this one, and then, and then I'll, I'll come in. I'll come in at the end. <laughs> So I'm going to try and hide my bias as much as sure, I can, but sure. I don't know if it's going to be possible. Yeah, I think I think this game is perhaps best characterized as, as karma, perhaps, after they kind of got that smash and grab draw with Liverpool last weekend. What this game probably showed was the importance of uh, Richarlison to the team. I think Alex Iwobi just did not do the same job um, that Richarlison does at that left-wing position. It also probably shows that Gilfie Sigurdsson is not an especially great pick at center midfield over Andre Gomes. And then lastly, you know, they've gotten another red card this week with uh, Luca Dina, which then sent Ancelotti off in the press. And I think in a weird way, this Everton team had started to grow a bit of an ego and a bit of a big club complex that is actually not useful to them in terms of their success for the rest of the season. And I think this was an important uh, coming back to earth. I, I think, Nick, you, you might, you know, recast some of those same <laughs> points, but with perhaps choicer, uh, <laughs> choicer words. Listen, listen, I think it was Justin Timberlake that once said, <laughs> what goes around, goes around, goes around, comes all the way back around. And I think we certainly some of that saw some of that karma come back around to uh, bite Everton in the ass in this game. I think Lucas Dina posting that Instagram uh, photo of him showing a red card to Tiago after he was getting up after the Richarlison challenge. I think that certainly came back around to bite him. And Ancelotti, yeah, that 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 post match press conference was really confusing to me. 
not only from a Liverpool perspective, but just the fact that like Everton have have sort of had these these incidents in the past in which they've gotten into some disciplinary problems. I think Dinia has just proven himself to be like a total fool in these past couple of, of weekends, um, getting himself sent off. I disagree with Ancelotti. I think that was a clear stomp on that Southampton player and Dinia was rightfully sent off. I think Richarlison not being available for this game following his horrendous challenge against Thiago in the Merseyside derby, I think that really hindered Everton's creativity. He's someone who is always willing to make that run into the box or is willing to be an outlet. I think they're really missing him in his presence in this game. I think he's probably, uh, all in all, has been you know probably their most complete performer this season, aside from you know Dominic Calvert-Lewin scoring the goals. And Calvert-Lewin, you know, he's going to have these games where he's snatching at chances a bit. Uh, I think especially going a man down probably impacts him the most uh, because the fact that he just kind of has to wait for, you know, any little snatch and grab chance to make an impact on the game with his team being down to 10 men. And I don't think he was able to do that. I still think he's he's set for probably his best goal scoring season. But I think this is a huge red flag for Everton and their fans. I think this is a pretty typical, you know, Everton performance in that like one week they get a point against Liverpool and then in the next week they collapse against a team that they really should be beating. Uh, I think once again, you saw that this this back four probably isn't ready to contend for a Premier League title. You know, Ben Godfrey coming from Norwich in the transfer window. I think he's probably, you know, he's probably a promising player. I don't think he's quite ready yet playing out of position in this game at right back. I think this Everton team has flattered to deceive a little bit, especially when it comes to their defense. These these two weeks have been the first adversity that they've faced all season. And you have to say that they have not faced that adversity particularly well. And they've come off looking like villains, honestly. I'll be totally honest. I think they've, they've come off and they haven't done themselves, you know, a world of good in, in the way that they're being portrayed in the media. And I think that's, this is totally like self-inflicted wounds that they're doing to themselves, that they're committing to themselves. And I think if you want to root for a title challenger from like outside of the top six, top seven, it would be Everton. It would be kind of the, the other smaller Merseyside club, you know, the little brother to Liverpool, pipping Liverpool to the defense of their title. But I think they're just not covering themselves in a lot of glory with the way that they're playing right now. You know, obviously the Pickford incident was highly discussed this week. He comes in here again, and he has another poor game. And then they get they get into another incident with Lucas Dina. They're now going to miss another key player for several weeks. So I think just the problems are slowly starting to mount up for Everton now. Yeah, I think as you as you kind of alluded to, they really sacrificed all of their goodwill um, in the last two weeks. I would say when you are a sort of non top six club that is performing perhaps beyond what people understand your means to be, you know, maintaining humility is really key, not only just sort of, I think, as, you know, a value of human behavior, but also in terms of your success, right? And right now it seems like Everton kind of fell into the Icarus trap. They flew a little too high um, and sort of fell off. And I think the problem, though, is, you know, with who they've brought in and who powers their success maintaining that humility is actually very hard because Ancelotti is obviously, you know, a huge name in world football, a multi-time, multi-time Champions League winner, at least once, yes. multi-time, Tw- twice with AC Milan, right? Twice with AC Milan, once with Real Madrid. Right. So there we go. 
Um, James Rodriguez is obviously one of the most recognizable names in world football. And so I think what we've seen with this team is there's a sort of tension between sort of what we understand Everton to be historically and how we should would normally perceive their levels of performance. And then at the same time, who is leading that charge? Um, and I think Ancelotti is going to have to kind of find a way to regain uh, some sense of humility, both himself and for his team, if he wants this to this project to continue. Because otherwise, I think they're just going to become disliked by the public. And I think they're also going to realize that they're not as good as they've been playing, really. Right. Like on paper, they are not the best team in the league by far. And so it's important that they don't think themselves like the out and out best team when when they just objectively are not. Right. I think this team is also dangerously thin when it comes to players outside of their starting 11 that can have a real impact. Obviously, right. we already touched on Gilfy Sigurdsson really not being a suitable replacement in that midfield three. I think Alex Awobi had a horrendous game before he was taken off. And obviously now without Lucas Dina, they're going to need to find some makeshift solution at left back and keep Ben Godfrey, you know, a center back at right back. So it's going to be, I think, a trying test for Everton over the next couple of weeks. You know, they have Newcastle next week. It's a very winnable game for them. But after that, after Newcastle, they have Manchester United and then Chelsea a few weeks down the road. So I think the true tests for Everton are going to be coming thick and fast. And with a depleted squad, I think we could see some more results like this. And maybe now to just round out our Premier League discussion, we can talk a little bit about the Arsenal-Leicester game, Ah, which, of course, Leicester, Vardy coming off the bench, getting the 1-0 win. Unfortunately, we don't have our resident arsenologist here but nick do your best uh nathan style analysis of this result i mean (laughs) i think (laughs) if you are nathan you try and find the positives stemming from this result i just think there were very few positives to take away for arsenal here i think they've looked a little a little boring for the past (laughs) couple of weeks you know they had that really drab affair against manchester city a week ago they came back from behind in Austria to beat Rapid Vienna in in midweek in the Europa League. Aubameyang comes into this game after scoring in midweek and I think really lays an egg once again in the Premier League. He hasn't scored since the opening day. This is his longest scoring drought for Arsenal since he's joined the club. Mm. Um, Alexander Lacazette <laughs> has uh, two goals at the Emirates since July. Do you know who else has two goals at the Emirates since July, Caleb? Hmm, who, Nick? It's uh, Jamie Vardy. Ah. And you know what's funny about Jamie Vardy? (laughs) It's that he doesn't play at the Emirates every other week. (laughs) (laughs) So I think real problems from an offensive standpoint for Arsenal. I think you are starting to see, you know, they're three and three in the league now. They're an exact 500. So I think you're starting to see that Arteta is a few pieces short of getting this team to where he wants it to be. He went with the 4-3-3 again. He lost in the 4-3-3 again. I think the 4-3-3 is what he wants to wants to put out every week with this Arsenal team. And as Nathan was texting us, you know, before the game began, he thought that the lineup that they put out was Arsenal's best 11 and they weren't able to really create anything against this Leicester back line that really didn't afford them any space in behind that defense. So I think they've really struggled 
when they're not able to, you know, get those willing runners in behind defenses. I just don't really understand this Aubameyang out wide experiment. I think if you have a player like Aubameyang and he's struggling form, you have to put him in the number nine and try and feed him some chances. And maybe he snatches at a half chance and he scores a goal and he gets, you know, back into full fit and firing mode in the Premier League. But Caleb, I'm interested to hear what you think. Chengi Zunder, obviously Leicester's new signing, coming off the bench, providing a real spark. He was able to get in behind, you know, uh, this Arsenal back four. David Luiz had to go off because of a an injury replaced by Mustafi, who I think had another pretty poor showing. I think Luiz was actually playing particularly well before mm-hmm. he had to be taken off. But I think this is another blemish for Arteta. You know, they've been very few and far between since he's taken over. But I think now you're starting to see he's getting some negative results mm-hmm. starting to roll through the doors. And this is the real, you know, test of his managerial abilities. We, we were curious to see, you know, how Leicester would get on without a striker, with their strikerless formation, putting uh, Madison, Barnes, and Pryte uh, up front. And honestly, like Leicester, I don't think put up that many shots they only had two shots on target six overall but you can never count out a player like Jamie Vardy to sort of put it to bed in terms of Arsenal I think it's just I I mean let's just like look at their performance across the season so they have the 13th best offense in the Premier League they're 3-0-3 and they technically have the second best defense in the league but they have seven goals against compared to eight. Um, and if they had eight, you know, they'd be tied for third, which would go, and there's like five or six teams that have eight goals. So point is, they have an incredibly average uh, offense and they have a defense that is, you know, pretty good. And I think we've been concerned about Arsenal's defense in the past, but is not like that much better. And I think it's just concerning that they can't score goals. We've talked about this before, how it might just be time to, say, you know what, this team actually isn't the squad we really want yet. And so we just have to play a Bema Yang at striker because he is our best striker. And at the end of the day, we just have to, you know, get goals in the back of the net, which we're struggling to do right now. And yes, that will crowd out minutes for Eddie and Ketia and Lacazette, um, blah, blah, blah. But uh, once again, if this team is playing averagely, and they are in 10th place, which frankly they deserve to be, then if they're not going to move up the table, they're not going to attract top talent. Right, and not even not even that. I think if you're if you're Mikel Arteta and you look at the competition surrounding you right now, you know, Liverpool are probably going to drop points. Uh, Man City look like they're well off the pace at the moment. United and Chelsea drew at the weekend, so they both dropped points. So this was a prime opportunity to capitalize on some of your rivals not being, you know, where they probably should be. And I think we were thinking about Arsenal being in and around that fourth place spot this season. And results like this, when your rivals have dropped points around you and you're not able to capitalize on that, that's how Liverpool were able to, you know, get so far ahead of the pack last season. You know, mm-hmm. that's the way that, you know, Man United were able to get into the Champions League places last season they were able to capitalize off of their surrounding neighbors dropping points. And I think if Arsenal isn't able to do that because they're not they're not scoring at the moment, that's a real issue. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And perhaps right, when you think of it that way, Arsenal are doing okay, right? Like it's kind of nuts, but the only sort of traditional top six team in the top six right now is Liverpool. 
Chelsea are in ninth, Arsenal are in tenth, Tottenham are in eleventh, City are in thirteenth, and United are in sixteenth. So in that sense, you know, amongst tops traditionally top six teams, Arsenal are third on that count. But I think your point is, you know, like, well, if all these teams are doing so poorly right now, Arsenal should be taking advantage of that. Um, and, and and you're right, they haven't. And in a lot of ways, right, you can view it as, oh, this is one of the best opportunities to get an early jump on those top four places. And I really am not convinced this Arsenal team is a Champions League team right now. Um, and they've kind of squandered that. Yeah, and I think on that point about, you know, bringing in talents, who some ROR elected to stay at Lyon this season. And you think about this game. This is a game that was that was crying out for a center attacking midfielder to link up the play between the strikers for Arsenal. And I think, you know, without that piece, without that Husum Arouar, without that, I know some Arsenal fans are probably going to shudder when I say this, without that Mesut Ozil as a creative force in their 11, I think they are lacking that sort of dynamism in their team right now. And they just look, you know, Arteta, his job was to really collect the spine of this team and, you know, build a resilient front. And I think he's done that pretty well up until now and I think now it's how do you how do you spring forward from building that spine and create a dynamic team because you know building the spine is one thing but you have to build the spine and then build dynamism on top of that as we've seen Jurgen Klopp do at Liverpool you know he right. was able to bring Van Dijk in and then he was able to layer that with you know a little bit of Fabinho a little bit of Naby Keita a little bit of Firmino at striker so right. it's, you know, how do you build off of the foundations of your team and make something interesting going forward? You know, a little bit, a little bit something like risk reward since you have the foundations right. so well set up. I think my perspective is I think nothing is given in soccer and I don't think Arsenal should take Champions League places or even Europa League places for granted. And I think it's essential to their project under Arteta for them to at least get Europa League. And so if you can't get a player like Nicolas Pepe to perform, if you can't get a player like Lacazette to perform, and you have a struggling Abemayang, it seems just utterly ridiculous to me that you would like elect to not even try Ozil in the Premier League, right? Like it just seems like a weirdly self-destructive thing because I don't think Arsenal are at the point as a club where they have the luxury of not trying players who are you know, World Cup winners. I think it was a complete error to leave Ozil off because at the end of the day, he probably still is better than many of their attacking players. And clearly, you know, creation is their issue right now. And he at one point and perhaps still is, you know, one of the top assisters of the past 10 years. I mean, he had a great season as recently as 2018. Like his numbers were pretty decent in that season. So I agree with you. I think it was a bit of a strange choice to not even register Mesodotzil, I don't know, like what his relationship is like with Mikel Arteta. I'm sure it's probably not, you know, phenomenal. But I think as no, it we've just seen, seems limiting. Yeah, it's just yeah, limiting. exactly. I think they are kind of you are kind of limiting yourself and completely leaving yourself out of the Ozil conversation. So we wanted to move on to Serie A briefly. I think we are running out of time here. But Caleb, Juventus are in trouble. It's yes. a big, it's a big AC Milan-sized problems <laughs> coming Juventus, <laughs> coming Juventus's way. Ibrahimovic is knocking, knocking on the door, and it's not looking great for Pirlo and Juventus right now. As it turns out, Weston McKenney was not the uh, missing piece that this <laughs> this Juventus. No, team you know, did. obviously Ronaldo is out with COVID right now, 
He's posting, you know, bald selfies of himself on Instagram from quarantine. <laughs> we wish him well uh, and hope he comes back healthy. But I think without Ronaldo, you're starting to see that there is a goal vacuum starting to crop up for Juventus. And Pirlo really now has to lean on his 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 tactics a little bit more. And players like Dejan Kulishevsky, who was able to save him at the weekend and salvage a 1-1 draw at home to Hellas Verona. And I think it's worrying from a Pirlo and Juventus standpoint that their biggest win of the season was a 3-0 forfeit because Napoli weren't able to travel for the match. So I don't know. I think it's just like we, we were really worried about this Juventus team going into the season. And I think we have very little reason to uh, not be concerned about Juventus's record thus far. I think that there are huge warning signs here because beyond Ronaldo, it's unclear where the goals are really coming from in this team. I think Morata has had, you know, a decent start overall, um, but he's never really gotten close to the 30 goal mark. Um, and then obviously, even if Ronaldo or once Ronaldo recovers from COVID, it's no guarantee that he'll still be able to score, you know, like 50 goals or whatever. I think Bernadeschi has not really panned out over the past few years. Chiesa is interesting, but once again, not a prolific score. And then I'm not totally sure what the story is with Dibola or why he's not been playing um, a ton. But I think the weekend. I know, but, but that was I, his I, that was his first Serie A appearance, I think, this year. So my understanding is that he's been waiting for a new contract. Okay, and yeah, yeah, okay. But but point is, like, <laughs> you got to sign the man, right? Like, twenty six uh, year old Divola is your best player after Ronaldo, um, and Ronaldo is what thirty five now. Yes. Um, and so clearly, we the future lies with one of those players, and so it'd be criminal for them not to resign. Uh, Paolo Dibola, especially when, you know, it really looks like their grip on Syria is 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 loosening. Yeah, they are currently three points off the pace despite having played one more game. Their offense is very average. Their defense is quite good, but they have more draws this year than wins. They have 18 center midfielders that don't score goals. They're missing their best attacking player, and their defense is aging. I don't think that's a great combination when you have you know, an Inter Milan team that I think are the most complete squad in the league, a Napoli team that are reinvigorated after the signing of Victor Osimhen, and then a Milan team that Ibrahimovic, one way or another, is just going to keep dragging to, to victories. So yeah. worry, worry some times for Juventus. Yeah, and I think we wanted to touch on, we, we thought it was going to be Inter Milan that were going to be the big challengers to the Juventus throne this season. And it turns out, that it is, we can probably touch on Napoli later, but I think Napoli are an interesting proposition this season, but they have one loss. AC Milan, the last team with the perfect record in Europe this season. They are 4-0. They have one game in hand on Napoli and the rest of the pack. They have beaten their rivals Inter Milan this season off of the, the back of two Ibrahimovic goals. Caleb, is this the reawakening of a sleeping giant in AC Milan. I'm, <laughs> I want to say yes, but I just like, I look at this team and I'm just like, I don't get it, right? Um, but at the same time, I think the Milan derby was an incredibly enlightening game, right? Because on paper, so many of these interplayers are better than their counterparts on this AC Milan side. And yet, Ibrahimovic showed that 
in big games, he delivers. And Lukaku and Martinez can only produce one goal between them. Um, and so I think we have to take this team seriously. I think the worry, though, is clearly Ibrahimovic is, is what's giving them this boost. A 39-year-old who has had some injury issues um, as he's gotten older is definitely, you know, I'm not sure he can last an entire season. And so in those games where he's out injured or they just need to rotate him, the question is, can they maintain top performance? I think Ibrahimovic has really been the catalyst for this team to be successful. Going all the way back to Project Restart, when he won the Corner Kick Comeback Player of the Year award. But I think you are right that without Ibrahimovic, this team is might struggle for goals a little bit. I think a bright spot for them has been Rafael Leao coming in off the left-hand side. You know, He provided the assist for one of Ibrahimovic's goals in that derby. And I think overall has been one of AC Milan's better signings in the past three or four years in terms of, you know, actually cashing in on a promising young player. You know, sometimes AC Milan have just, you know, kind of pulled a football manager and, you know, reached out across Europe and collected just random assortments of uh, subpar to average promising talents. But I think Rafael Leao is the real deal. I am a big you know, believer in AC Milan. Obviously, their history with Liverpool in the 2000s is something that I respect quite a bit. So I would be really interested to see what they can do this season. But just like Ibrahimovic, we are going to deliver two podcasts this week. Uh, just as Ibrahimovic delivered two goals against Inter Milan. Uh, there's this one with Caleb and I. And hopefully, we will have Nathan back with us by the end of the week. But Thank you for joining us. I think this has been a pretty good discussion on a busy weekend of soccer. We will be back with you shortly. But until then, I've been Nick Vinden. I am Caleb Rhodes. And we will see you all next time.